Chapter four, part four of the Stones of Venice, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Stones of Venice, volume two by John Ruskin. Chapter four, St. Mark's, part four. Law seven that the impression of the architecture is not to be dependent on size and now there is but one final consequence to be deduced the reader understands i trust by this time that the claims of these several parts of the building upon his attention will depend upon their delicacy of design their perfection of colour their preciousness of material and their legendary interest all these qualities are independent of size and partly even inconsistent with it neither delicacy of surface sculpture nor subtle gradations of colour can be appreciated by the eye at a distance and since we have seen that our sculpture is generally to be only an inch or two in depth and that our colouring is in great part to be produced with the soft tints and veins of natural stones it will follow necessarily that none of the parts of the building can be removed far from the eye and therefore that the whole mass of it cannot be large it is not even desirable that it should be so for the temper in which the mind addresses itself to contemplate minute and beautiful details is altogether different from that in which it submits itself to vague impressions of space and size and therefore we must not be disappointed but grateful when we find all the best work of the building concentrated within a space comparatively small and that for the great cliff-like buttresses and mighty piers of the north shooting up into indiscernible height we have here low walls spread before us like the pages of a book and shafts whose capitals we may touch with our hand the due consideration of the principles above stated will enable the traveller to judge with more candour and justice of the architecture of st mark's than usually it would have been possible for him to do while under the influence of the prejudices necessitated by familiarity with the very different schools of northern art i wish it were in my power to lay also before the general reader some exemplification of the manner in which these strange principles are developed in the lovely building but exactly in proportion to the nobility of any work is the difficulty of conveying a just impression of it and wherever i have occasion to bestow high praise there it is exactly most dangerous for me to endeavour to illustrate my meaning except by reference to the work itself and in fact the principal reason why architectural criticism is at this day so far behind all other is the impossibility of illustrating the best architecture faithfully of the various schools of painting examples are accessible to every one and reference to the works themselves is found sufficient for all purposes of criticism but there is nothing like st mark's or the ducal palace to be referred to in the national gallery and no faithful illustration of them is possible on the scale of such a volume as this and it is exceedingly difficult on any scale nothing is so rare in art as far as my own experience goes as a fair illustration of architecture perfect illustration of it does not exist for all good architecture depends upon the adaptation of its chiselling to the effect at a certain distance from the eye and to render the peculiar confusion in the midst of order and uncertainty in the midst of decision and mystery in the midst of trenchant lines which are the result of distance together with perfect expression of the peculiarities of the design requires the skill of the most admirable artist devoted to the work with the most severe conscientiousness neither the skill nor the determination having as yet been given to the subject 
and in the illustration of details every building of any pretensions to high architectural rank would require a volume of plates and those finished with extraordinary care with respect to the two buildings which are the principal subjects of the present volume st mark's and the ducal palace i have found it quite impossible to do them the slightest justice by any kind of portraiture and i abandoned the endeavour in the case of the latter with less regret because in the new crystal palace as the poetical public insist upon calling it though it is neither a palace nor of crystal there will be placed i believe a noble cast of one of its angles as for st mark's the effort was hopeless from the beginning for its effect depends not only upon the most delicate sculpture in every part but as we have just stated eminently on its colour also and that the most subtle variable inexpressible colour in the world the colour of glass of transparent alabaster of polished marble and lustrous gold it would be easier to illustrate a crest of scottish mountain with its purple heather and pale harebells at their fullest and fairest or a glade of jura forest with its floor of anemone and moss than a single portico of st mark's the fragment of one of its archivolts given at the bottom of the opposite plate is not to illustrate the thing itself but to illustrate the impossibility of illustration it is left a fragment in order to get it on a larger scale and yet even on this scale it is too small to show the sharp folds and points of the marble vine leaves with sufficient clearness the ground of it is gold the sculpture in the spandrels is not more than an inch and a half deep rarely so much it is in fact nothing more than an exquisite sketching of outlines in marble to about the same depth as the elgin frieze the draperies however being filled with close folds in the manner of the byzantine pictures folds especially necessary here as large masses could not be expressed in the shallow sculpture without becoming insipid but the disposition of these folds is always most beautiful and often opposed by broad and simple spaces like that obtained by the scroll in the hand of the prophet seen in the plate the balls in the archivolts project considerably and the interstices between their interwoven bands of marble are filled with colours like the illuminations of a manuscript violet crimson blue gold and green alternately but no green is ever used without an intermixture of blue pieces in the mosaic nor any blue without a little centre of pale green sometimes only a single piece of glass a quarter of an inch square so subtle was the feeling for colour which was thus to be satisfied and the fact is that no two tesserae of the glass are exactly of the same tint the greens being all varied with blues the blues of different depths the reds of different clearness so that the effect of each mass of colour is full of variety like the stippled colour of a fruit piece the intermediate circles have golden stars set on an azure ground varied in the same manner and the small crosses seen in the intervals are alternately blue and subdued scarlet with two small circles of white set in the golden ground above and beneath them each only about half an inch across this work remember being on the outside of the building and twenty feet above the eye while the blue crosses have each a pale green centre of all this exquisitely mingled hue no plate however large or expensive could give any adequate conception but if the reader will supply in imagination to the engraving what he supplies to a common woodcut of a group of flowers the decision of the respective merits of modern and of byzantine architecture may be allowed to rest on this fragment of st mark's alone from the vine leaves of that archivolt though there is no direct imitation of nature in them 
but on the contrary a studious subjection to architectural purpose more particularly to be noticed hereafter we may yet receive the same kind of pleasure which we have in seeing true vine leaves and wreathed branches traced upon golden light its stars upon their azure ground ought to make us remember as its builder remembered the stars that ascend and fall in the great arch of the sky and i believe that stars and boughs and leaves and bright colours are everlastingly lovely and to be by all men beloved and moreover that church walls grimly seared with squared lines are not better nor nobler things than these i believe the man who designed and the men who delighted in that archivolt to have been wise happy and holy let the reader look back to the archivolt i have already given out of the streets of london and see what there is in it to make us any of the three let him remember that the men who design such work as that call st mark's a barbaric monstrosity and let him judge between us some farther details of the st mark's architecture and especially a general account of byzantine capitals and of the principal ones at the angles of the church will be found in the following chapter here i must pass on to the second part of our immediate subject namely the inquiry how far the exquisite and varied ornament of st mark's fits it as a temple for its sacred purpose and would be applicable in the churches of modern times we have here evidently two questions the first that wide and continually agitated one whether richness of ornament be right in churches at all the second whether the ornament of st mark's be of a truly ecclesiastical and christian character in the first chapter of the seven lamps of architecture i endeavoured to lay before the reader some reasons why churches ought to be richly adorned as being the only places in which the desire of offering a portion of all precious things to god could be legitimately expressed but i left wholly untouched the question whether the church as such stood in need of adornment or would be better fitted for its purposes by possessing it this question i would now ask the reader to deal with briefly and candidly the chief difficulty in deciding it has arisen from its being always presented to us in an unfair form it is asked of us or we ask of ourselves whether the sensation which we now feel in passing from our own modern dwelling-house through a newly built street into a cathedral of the thirteenth century be safe or desirable as a preparation for public worship but we never ask whether that sensation was at all calculated upon by the builders of the cathedral now i do not say that the contrast of the ancient with the modern building and the strangeness with which the earlier architectural forms fall upon the eye are at this day disadvantageous but i do say that their effect whatever it may be was entirely uncalculated upon by the old builder he endeavoured to make his work beautiful but never expected it to be strange and we incapacitate ourselves altogether from fair judgment of its intention if we forget that when it was built it rose in the midst of other work fanciful and beautiful as itself that every dwelling-house in the middle ages was rich with the same ornaments and quaint with the same grotesques which fretted the porches or animated the gargoyles of the cathedral that what we now regard with doubt and wonder as well as with delight was then the natural continuation into the principal edifice of the city of a style which was familiar to every eye throughout all its lanes and streets and that the architect had often no more idea of producing a peculiarly devotional impression by the richest colour and the most elaborate carving than the builder of a modern meeting-house has by his whitewashed walls and square-cut casements 
let the reader fix this great fact well in his mind and then follow out its important corollaries we attach in modern days a kind of sacredness to the pointed arch and the groined roof because while we look habitually out of square windows and live under flat ceilings we meet with the more beautiful forms in the ruins of our abbeys but when those abbeys were built the pointed arch was used for every shop door as well as for that of the cloister and the feudal baron and freebooter feasted as the monk sang under vaulted roofs not because the vaulting was thought especially appropriate to either the revel or psalm but because it was then the form in which a strong roof was easiest built we have destroyed the goodly architecture of our cities we have substituted one wholly devoid of beauty or meaning and then we reason respecting the strange effect upon our minds of the fragments which fortunately we have left in our churches as if those churches had always been designed to stand out in strong relief from all the buildings around them and gothic architecture had always been what it is now a religious language like monkish latin most readers know if they would arouse their knowledge that this was not so but they take no pains to reason the matter out they abandon themselves drowsily to the impression that gothic is a peculiarly ecclesiastical style and sometimes even that richness in church ornament is a condition or furtherance of the romish religion undoubtedly it has become so in modern times for there being no beauty in our recent architecture and much in the remains of the past and these remains being almost exclusively ecclesiastical the high church and romanist parties have not been slow in availing themselves of the natural instincts which were deprived of all food except from this source and have willingly promulgated the theory that because all the good architecture that is now left is expressive of high church or romanist doctrines all good architecture ever has been and must be so a piece of absurdity from which though here and there a country clergyman may innocently believe it i hope the common sense of the nation will soon manfully quit itself it needs but little inquiry into the spirit of the past to ascertain what once for all i would desire here clearly and forcibly to assert that wherever christian church architecture has been good and lovely it has been merely the perfect development of the common dwelling-house architecture of the period that when the pointed arch was used in the street it was used in the church when the round arch was used in the street it was used in the church when the pinnacle was set over the garret window it was set over the belfry tower when the flat roof was used for the drawing-room it was used for the nave there is no sacredness in round arches nor in pointed none in pinnacles nor in buttresses none in pillars nor in traceries churches were larger than most other buildings because they had to hold more people they were more adorned than most other buildings because they were safer from violence and were the fitting subjects of devotional offering but they were never built in any separate mystical and religious style they were built in the manner that was common and familiar to everybody at the time the flamboyant traceries that adorn the façade of rouen cathedral had once their fellows in every window of every house in the market-place the sculptures that adorn the porches of st mark's had once their match on the walls of every palace on the grand canal and the only difference between the church and the dwelling-house was that there existed a symbolical meaning in the distribution of the parts of all buildings meant for worship and that the painting or sculpture was in the one case less frequently of profane subject than in the other a more severe distinction cannot be drawn for secular history was constantly introduced into church architecture 
and sacred history or allusion generally formed at least one half of the ornament of the dwelling-house this fact is so important and so little considered that i must be pardoned for dwelling upon it at some length and accurately marking the limits of the assertion i have made i do not mean that every dwelling-house of medieval cities was as richly adorned and as exquisite in composition as the fronts of their cathedrals but that they presented features of the same kind often in parts quite as beautiful and that the churches were not separated by any change of style from the buildings round them as they are now but were merely more finished and full examples of a universal style rising out of the confused streets of the city as an oak tree does out of an oak copse not differing in leafage but in size and symmetry of course the quainter and smaller forms of turret and window necessary for domestic service the inferior materials often wood instead of stone and the fancy of the inhabitants which had free play in the design introduced oddnesses vulgarities and variations into house architecture which were prevented by the traditions the wealth and the skill of the monks and freemasons while on the other hand conditions of vaulting buttressing and arch and tower building were necessitated by the mere size of the cathedral of which it would be difficult to find examples elsewhere but there was nothing more in these features than the adaptation of mechanical skill to vaster requirements there was nothing intended to be or felt to be especially ecclesiastical in any of the forms so developed and the inhabitants of every village and city when they furnished funds for the decoration of their church desired merely to adorn the house of god as they adorned their own only a little more richly and with a somewhat graver temper in the subjects of the carving even this last difference is not always clearly discernible all manner of ribaldry occurs in the details of the ecclesiastical buildings of the north and at the time when the best of them were built every man's house was a kind of temple a figure of the madonna or of christ almost always occupied a niche over the principal door and the old testament histories were curiously interpolated amidst the grotesques of the brackets and the gables and the reader will now perceive that the question respecting fitness of church decoration rests in reality on totally different grounds from those commonly made foundations of argument so long as our streets are walled with barren brick and our eyes rest continually in our daily life on objects utterly ugly or of inconsistent and meaningless design it may be a doubtful question whether the faculties of eye and mind which are capable of perceiving beauty having been left without food during the whole of our active life should be suddenly feasted upon entering a place of worship and colour and music and sculpture should delight the senses and stir the curiosity of men unaccustomed to such appeal at the moment when they are required to compose themselves for acts of devotion this i say may be a doubtful question but it cannot be a question at all that if once familiarized with beautiful form and colour and accustomed to see in whatever human hands have executed for us even for the lowest services evidence of noble thought and admirable skill we shall desire to see this evidence also in whatever is built or laboured for the house of prayer that the absence of the accustomed loveliness would disturb instead of assisting devotion and that we should feel it as vain to ask whether with our own house full of goodly craftsmanship we should worship god in a house destitute of it as to ask whether a pilgrim whose day's journey had led him through fair woods and by sweet waters must at evening turn aside into some barren place to pray 
then the second question submitted to us whether the ornament of st mark's be truly ecclesiastical and christian is evidently determined together with the first for if not only the permission of ornament at all but the beautiful execution of it be dependent on our being familiar with it in daily life it will follow that no style of noble architecture can be exclusively ecclesiastical it must be practised in the dwelling before it be perfected in the church and it is the test of a noble style that it shall be applicable to both for if essentially false and ignoble it may be made to fit the dwelling-house but never can be made to fit the church and just as there are many principles which will bear the light of the world's opinion yet will not bear the light of god's word while all principles which will bear the test of scripture will also bear that of practice so in architecture there are many forms which expediency and convenience may apparently justify or at least render endurable in daily use which will yet be found offensive the moment they are used for church service but there are none good for church service which cannot bear daily use thus the renaissance manner of building is a convenient style for dwelling-houses but the natural sense of all religious men causes them to turn from it with pain when it has been used in churches and this has given rise to the popular idea that the roman style is good for houses and the gothic for churches this is not so the roman style is essentially base and we can bear with it only so long as it gives us convenient windows and spacious rooms the moment the question of convenience is set aside and the expression or beauty of the style is tried by its being used in a church we find it fail but because the gothic and byzantine styles are fit for churches they are not therefore less fit for dwellings they are in the highest sense fit and good for both nor were they ever brought to perfection except where they were used for both but there is one character of byzantine work which according to the time at which it was employed may be considered as either fitting or unfitting it for distinctly ecclesiastical purposes i mean the essentially pictorial character of its decoration we have already seen what large surfaces it leaves void of bold architectural features to be rendered interesting merely by surface ornament or sculpture in this respect byzantine work differs essentially from pure gothic styles which are capable of filling every vacant space by features purely architectural and may be rendered if we please altogether independent of pictorial aid a gothic church may be rendered impressive by mere successions of arches accumulations of niches and entanglements of tracery but a byzantine church requires expression and interesting decoration over vast plain surfaces decoration which becomes noble only by becoming pictorial that is to say by representing natural objects men animals or flowers and therefore the question whether the byzantine style be fit for church service in modern days becomes involved in the inquiry what effect upon religion has been or may yet be produced by pictorial art and especially by the art of the mosaicist End of chapter four part four